Why do you keep calling? I am currently laying down the freeze on actinokeratosis. Leave your name, number, and a description of your cancer. Otherwise, your message will be destroyed. Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back. So in the last episode, we discussed the most common type of cancer in the world with basal cell carcinomas, and today we'll be giving you the rundown on number two, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. Unlike BCCs that almost never metastasize, squamous cell carcinomas are more likely to behave aggressively and have an estimated mortality between 4,000 to 9,000 deaths annually in the U.S., The morbidity and mortality of SCCs is often underappreciated, even amongst dermatology providers, so we'll cover it in depth and go over its pathogenesis, risk factors, diagnosis, and treatment. However, we will first start our discussion with its precursor lesions, actinic keratoses, which are one of the more common reasons for patients to visit their dermatologist. So, we have a lot of really important material to cover today, so I thought I would bring back one of our favorite new attendings, Dr. Chop, who will give us some pearls along the way. I'm not going to teach you anything unless you find out why there is no bone saw on the tray. Before we jump in, I'll mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Alright, so let's start with actinic keratoses, aka AKs, okay? Okay, so what are they? Actinic keratoses are pre-malignant lesions with a very low but relevant risk of progression to squamous cell carcinoma. They classically present as erythematous, scaly macules, papules, or plaques on the sun-exposed areas of the head, neck, and dorsal hands and arms. Oftentimes, they can be subtle enough where we feel them with palpation before we can actually see them. AKs are usually asymptomatic, but they can be tender on occasion. Okay, so I'm blasting actinic keratosis with my high-caliber nitro gun. What are the other types of AKs I should be looking for? What Dr. Chop is referring to are the variants of AKs. They can be hypertrophic, which has a thick adherent scale. They can become hypertrophic enough that they become another variant that we call a cutaneous horn, which has a horn-like projection of keratin that is at least half as tall as the lesion is wide. And how many of these horns will have a squamous cell hiding in the shadows? Up to 20% of cutaneous horns have SCC at the base of the lesion. Therefore, they should be biopsied with a good scoop to rule out malignancy. Again, remember up to 20% of cutaneous horns can have SCC at their base. Besides regular or hypertrophic AKs, you can also have pigmented AKs that can look scary and mimic lentigo maligna. Or you can have AKs on the lips that we call actinic chelitis. Actinic chelitis classically presents as persistent scaliness of the lower lip that patients often interpret as dryness. The lower lip is favored in part because the upper lip gets some sun protection from the shadow of the nose. Actinic chelitis will blur the normally sharp border between the vermilion lip, which is the colorful part of the lip itself where Dr. Chop likes to put his lipstick on, and the cutaneous lip, which is skin-toned. Lipstick? No! 
So for actinic chelitis, think scaliness of the lower more so than the upper lip with blurring of the vermilion border. So why did I invest so much money in this high-caliber nitroblaster? You think I bought it for self-defense? No, I do it to prevent the squamous cell. If I don't hunt down and destroy the actinic keratosis, what percent will grow up to be the big bad squamous cell? When it comes to the data on an individual AK's annual risk of progression to squamous cell carcinoma, the numbers are all over in the literature between 0.03% to 20%, with most studies showing less than 1% progression. However, rather than putting you to sleep with all the different numbers, remember this, the progression is low, but it is real. I remember that around 10% of AKs will progress to SCC over the course of 10 years. Again, I remember that around 10% of AKs will progress to SCC over the course of 10 years. There have been studies showing around 60% of cutaneous SCCs arise from pre-existing AKs, so this is why we treat them. Many dermatologists will also tell you that patients with multiple AKs who receive regular treatment will develop fewer squamous cell carcinomas than those who disappear from the office for a few years and come back with SCCs at the previous AK-prone sites. So, although the risk of an individual AK progressing to SCC is low, patients often have multiple lesions which together add up to a high enough risk that the vast, vast majority of dermatologists will treat AKs with a variety of methods that we'll discuss. We're running out of time. Tell me the histology findings for actinic keratosis now! Histology findings of AKs will show atypia that starts in the basal layer and is restricted to the lower third to two-thirds of the epidermis. This contrasts with squamous cell carcinoma that shows full thickness atypia. For AKs, there is also perikeratosis, which remember appears as a thickened stratum corneum with retained nuclei. This perikeratosis is due to rapid cell turnover caused by these pre-malignant AKs. Also remember that the perikeratosis will correlate with the scale that we see and feel clinically. Another histologic clue to AKs will be a background of sun damage, which we see as solar elastosis. So what is that? Solar elastosis makes the dermis appear this homogeneous gray color rather than the healthy pink collagen that we all would like to have. So, what are some treatments for AKs? If a few lesions are present, they are often treated with liquid nitrogen, aka cryotherapy. A common pimp question asked to medical students is the boiling point of liquid nitrogen, so you'll want to remember that it's negative 196 degrees Celsius or negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, the boiling point of liquid nitrogen is negative 196 degrees Celsius or negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit. Studies show a cure rate for liquid nitrogen somewhere between 40 to 80%, but it's very user-dependent. If many lesions are present over a diffuse area, then we reach for field therapies such as photodynamic therapy, aka PDT, chemical peels, or topical chemotherapy. Well, Doc, it was a white cream. The cream came in a white tube, and that tube came in a box with blue writing on it. There are four types of topical treatments used to treat actinic keratosis, which include 5-fluorouracil, which blocks the methylate synthetase, amiquamod, inginol mebutate, aka picato, or diclofenac. Out of all the AK treatments we've discussed, 5-fluorouracil, again called 5-FU, is the most effective. Some recent literature shows that 5-FU mixed with topical calcipitrine has an even greater efficacy and better tolerability for patients. Other combinations, such as cryotherapy followed by topical 5-FU, also have better efficacy than using just one treatment modality.
So just a couple of quick notes on AK treatment as well. One is that there is a lot of variance in how topical treatments are used. Because they cause an inflammatory reaction that can be quite irritating to the patient, some providers don't treat for the full two to four weeks that is recommended. Instead, they break up the treatment into five to 10 day intervals with complete healing in between those sessions. Other providers will prescribe a mild topical steroid to use during or after the treatment to help with that irritation. And lastly, if AKs are painful or hypertrophic or not responding to therapy, that's when you should consider a biopsy to rule out underlying SCC. It's also crucial to discuss sun protection with patients because remember from the first episode that UV exposure has an immunosuppressive effect on the skin. So our immune system isn't as effective at finding and taking care of these AKs when we have a lot of sun exposure. I've heard enough about the actinic keratosis. Tell me about the squamous cell. So let's start with some quick stats. Squamous cell carcinoma is the second most common skin cancer, which makes it the second most common overall cancer in humans. An estimated 700,000 new cases of SCC are diagnosed yearly in the U.S. And like I mentioned in the beginning, they can behave much more aggressively than BCCs and can claim the lives of roughly 4,000 to 9,000 Americans each year. SCCs were traditionally thought to make up around 20% of the non-melanoma skin cancers, while BCCs make up 80%. However, the incidence of SCCs is rising to push that ratio closer to a 1 to 1 ratio. Clinically, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma has a variable presentation as a pink to red papule, plaque, or nodule that may have scale, erosion, ulceration, or even pigment. Lesions may be painful or tender as well. Okay now, let's make the grumpy head proud. He brought me here to beat this information into your brain. What is the mutation in the squamous cell? And don't stop there. Tell me the nine risk factors for the development of the squamous cell. The most common gene mutation in SCC involves the tumor suppressor P53, which is mutated in 45 to 60% of SCCs. Since P53 is a tumor suppressor, it normally puts the brakes on cell division. So when it becomes mutated, it's like taking away the brakes, which allows the affected cell to progress more quickly through the cell cycle, leading to a cancerous proliferation. As for risk factors for cutaneous SCC, they include exposure to UV light and more specifically, chronic UV exposure. Then we also have older age, male sex in a three to one ratio compared to women, lighter Fitzpatrick skin types one through three, chronic scarring of the skin, immunosuppression, human papillomavirus, environmental exposures to arsenic and contaminated well water, a variety of genetic syndromes including xeroderma pigmentosum, medications, and other chronic lesions including scars, burns, hypertrophic lupus, hypertrophic lichen planus, or undertreated chronic lichen sclerosis. I know that's a long list, so let's hear it again. Risk factors for cutaneous SCC include exposure to UV light and especially chronic UV exposure, older age, male sex, lighter Fitzpatrick skin types 1 through 3, chronic scarring of the skin, immunosuppression, human papillomavirus, environmental exposures to arsenic, genetic syndromes such as xeroderma pigmentosum, medications, and other chronic lesions including hypertrophic lupus, hypertrophic lichen planus, or undertreated chronic lichen sclerosis. I don't care if it's on the eyelid. Give me the 2 suture. No! 
So let's break down some of these risk factors a little more in depth. Sun exposure is a crucial risk factor for SCC development, but sunlight isn't the only type of light that can lead to squamous cell carcinoma. Ionizing radiation, such as that used in x-rays, CT scans, and fluoroscopy can also increase SCC risk. In cases where SCC arises in radiated skin, it tends to be much more aggressive and can metastasize in 10 to 30% of those cases, unfortunately. And although we don't traditionally think of medications causing SCCs, patients exposed to vismotajib for BCC treatment or the BRAF inhibitors such as dabrafenib used for metastatic melanoma can have an increased risk for SCC. Immunosuppression also plays a huge role for SCC, with transplant patients having anywhere from 100 to 250 times the likelihood of developing SCC, compared to just a 5 to 10 times increased risk of basal cell carcinoma in these patients, which is still significant. But as we know, immunosuppression can come in many forms. Patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, aka CLL, also have relative immunosuppression and have up to 10 times the risk of SCC as well. So this really shows the importance of immunosurveillance. As you would expect, these patients with immunosuppression will need close monitoring with regular skin checks as well. And as far as environmental risk factors, arsenic exposure, which can be found in well water or pesticides, can lead to SCC development along with arsenical keratoses of the hands and mes lines of the nails, which appears horizontal white lines on the nail plate. Everyone is being a big baby about the arsenic. My mother put arsenic in my baby bottle, and now look at me. Variants of SCC that will quickly run through include keratoacanthomas, boanoid papulosis, Bowen's disease, erythroplasia of K-Rot, spelled Q-U-E-Y-R-A-T, erythroplasia of K-Rot, verrucous carcinoma, and a variety of SCC-specific subtypes that are more aggressive, including adenosquamous SCC or desmoplastic SCC, with desmoplasia referring to scarring or fibrosis around the tumor. So let's start with keratoacanthomas, aka KAs, which are a relatively common SCC variant. Keratoacanthomas have similar risk factors to SCCs that we discussed previously, but they can also develop at sites of trauma such as surgical scars or even tattoos. KAs present as a dome-shaped nodule with a central keratin plug. The natural history of keratoacanthomas is that they grow quickly over the course of weeks and then slowly involute over months. However, since there have been rare cases of invasive KAs that have metastasized to lymph nodes, we treat them. For the residents listening, there are two KA syndromes that we must know. Can you think of them? We have Ferguson-Smith syndrome with multiple KAs that develop in patients' teens and 20s in a localized fashion, and then compare Ferguson-Smith syndrome to the Grzybowski type, which presents as thousands of smaller KAs in a generalized fashion in older adults. To remember which is which, I remember Grzybowski occurs in grown-ups and is generalized. 3G, baby. Too bad I'm not teaching you a thing or two. We'd be living the good life in 4G with your friend Grumpy Pants here. Or you can remember Grzybowski, old Grumpy Pants. The next three SCC variants that we'll discuss are all actually SCC in situ, but they have different clinical presentations and risk of invasion. We're talking about boanoid papulosis, Bowen's disease, and erythroplasia of K-Rot. Again, all different forms of SCC in situ. 
Bonoid papulosis consists of small papules in the anogenital region which develop within HPV-induced genital warts in younger patients. These are usually caused by the higher-risk subtypes 16, 18, 31, or 33 and have less atypia than Bowen's disease or erythroplasia of K-Rot. Bowen's disease is a term used synonymously with SCC in situ on any body location. However, Bowen's disease has a higher risk of invasion than bonoid papulosis. Then, erythroplasia of K-Rot is simply SCCIS that develops on the gland's penis. I know this terminology can get confusing, so again, there are three variants of SCC in situ. Bonoid papulosis arises within HPV-induced genital warts and has the lowest risk of progression. Bowen's disease is a synonym for SCC in situ on any body location and has a higher risk of invasion than bonoid papulosis. And lastly, erythroplasia of K-Rot is simply Bowen's disease on the gland's penis. Dr. Chap, is that a power drill on the tree? Yes, it is. There's nothing wrong with having the right tools for the job. Next, we have verrucous carcinomas, which are low-grade SCC variants that are associated with HPV types 6 and 11. The three variants of verrucous carcinoma worth remembering include Bushke-Lowenstein tumors, epithelioma cuniculatum, and oral florid papillomatosis. Bushke-Lowenstein tumors appear as massive warts in the genital region. Epithelioma cuniculatum presents as a slow-growing mass on the bottom of the foot that can destroy the underlying bone, while oral florid papillomatosis presents with multiple wart-like lesions in, guess where, the mouth. You mentioned that the squamous cell are more likely to metastasize than the basal. You're not an idiot for saying that, but now you must tell me the risk factors for the metastasis. Here's another important list for us all to remember. Risk factors for SCC metastases include tumor diameter greater than 2 centimeters, tumor breslow depth greater than 2 millimeters, poorly differentiated tumors, perineural invasion of nerves greater than 0.1 millimeters, tumor location on the lip, ear, or within a scar, SCCs that are recurrent or more likely to metastasize, and SCC in patients who are immunosuppressed. Again, the risk factors for SCC metastases include tumor diameter greater than 2 centimeters, depth greater than 2 millimeters, poorly differentiated tumors, perineural invasion, tumor location on the lip, ear, or within a scar, SCCs that are recurrent, and SCC in patients who are immunosuppressed. As far as tumor depth and metastasis risk, lesions between 2 to 6 millimeters in depth metastasize around 4% of the time, while lesions deeper than 6 millimeters metastasize 16% of the time. So here's those numbers again. Lesions between 2 to 6 millimeters in depth metastasize 4% of the time, while lesions deeper than 6 millimeters metastasize 16% of the time. SCC arising in scars due to wounds, radiation, or conditions like discoid lupus have a 25% risk of metastases, so keep a close eye on sun-exposed scars during your skin checks to catch these aggressive SCCs early on. So can we stage the squamous cell? Now, I don't want to hike too far into the weeds, but I want to mention that there are two criteria that are currently used for staging cutaneous SCC. One being the American Joint Committee on Cancer's 8th edition, which was released in 2016, and two being the Brigham and Women's Hospital Staging Protocol. 
We use staging systems like these to risk stratify patients to determine if they need further workup or more aggressive treatment. The AJCC8 guidelines only apply to squamous cell carcinomas on the head and neck. It uses the classic TNM factors, tumor burden, lymph node status, and presence of metastases. For the AJCC8 staging of SCCs, the tumor burden is based on tumor diameter, tumor depth, perineural invasion, and subcutaneous or bony invasion. Again, the AJCC8 staging criteria use tumor diameter, tumor depth, perineural invasion, and subcutaneous or bony invasion for SCC staging. Meanwhile, the Brigham and Women's Hospital SCC staging uses similar tumor characteristics, but it does not use the nodal or metastases criteria. The only tumor characteristic that is in the BWH staging system and not the AJCC8 staging system is poor tumor differentiation. I'm not going to go into the exact staging for either, but I want you to be aware of them and be aware of the worrisome tumor features that we all need to be on the watch for. For patients with high-risk tumors according to these staging systems, they will need a thorough lymph node exam and FNA or biopsy of any detectable lymph nodes. Patients with higher stages and negative lymph node exams will still need imaging such as CT, MRI, or PET-CT to detect nodal metastases that will alter our management. We're running out of time! How do we treat the squamous cell or do we just keep cutting it over and over? When it comes to squamous cell carcinomas, our treatment options are similar to what we discussed in the last BCC episode. Standard electrodesiccation and curatage, aka EDNCs, have given cure rates over 90% in some of the reported studies. Topical 5-FU has also shown cure rates over 90% for SEC in situ in some very small studies though. These cure rates drop below 80% with amiquimod, so it isn't often used. The most commonly used treatments are surgical excisions and Mohs surgery, with wide local excisions giving a cure rate around 92% for lesions that don't meet the criteria for Mohs, whereas Mohs has around a 97% cure rate. It's also worth mentioning that there is evidence for preventing AKs and SCCs with either nicotinamide or oral retinoids such as acetretin or isotretinoin. Nicotinamide, which is the non-flushing amide form of niacin, enhances repair of UV DNA damage and is dosed at 500 mg BID. Studies of nicotinamide show around 15% reduction of AKs and 30% reduction of SCCs after 12 months, so keep this in mind for your patients who have been burnt to a crisp over the years. Other treatments include adjuvant radiation, which can be considered in a case-by-case -case basis depending on the patient's age, comorbidities, and risk of local recurrence. Adjuvant chemotherapy can also be used on a case-by-case -case basis and has traditionally been a cocktail of two of the following, 5-fluorouracil, cisplatin, carboplatin, or paclitaxel. There has also been some reported success with new immunotherapies such as nivolumab, aka Opdivo, pembrolizumab, aka Keytruda, or semiplumab, aka Libteo. So, I want to quick sum things up before we say goodbye to Dr. Chop until season three. But I just got here. No! I have to go anyhow. Dr. Grumpy needs a favor. Remember, AKs are erythematous scaly lesions with a low but relevant risk of turning into SCC. AKA variants include hypertrophic AKs, cutaneous horns which have a 20% risk of SCC, pigmented AKs, and actinic chelitis on the lips. Biopsy of AKs show perikeratosis overlying atypia that starts in the basal layer and is restricted to the lower third to two-thirds of the epidermis as a whole. 
AK treatments include any combination of liquid nitrogen, PDT, chemical peels, and one of our four topicals, 5-fluorouracil, amiquamod, inginol mebutate, and diclofenac. Squamous cell carcinoma is the second most common skin cancer, has p53 mutations most commonly, and a long list of risk factors, which include chronic UV exposure, older age, male sex, lighter Fitzpatrick skin types 1 through 3, chronic scarring of the skin, immunosuppression, HPV leading to the Verruca's carcinoma variants, environmental exposures to arsenic, a variety of genetic syndromes including xeroderma pigmentosum, medications, and other dermatoses including hypertrophic lupus, hypertrophic LP, and undertreated chronic lichen sclerosis. Clinical variants of SCC include keratoacanthomas, boanoid papulosis, Bowen's disease, erythroplasia of K-rot, verrucous carcinoma, and a variety of histologic subtypes including adenosquamous SCC or desmoplastic SCC. Risk factors for SCC metastases include tumor diameter greater than 2 cm, tumor breslow depth greater than 2 mm, poorly differentiated tumors, perineural invasion of nerves greater than 0.1 mm, tumor location on the lip, ear, or within a scar, and SCCs that are recurrent or SCCs in patients who are immunosuppressed. Treatment options for squamous cell carcinoma of the skin include EDNC, topical 5-FU, cryotherapy in selected patients, and most often surgical excision or Mohs surgery. If lesions are higher risk according to the AJCC8 or the Brigham and Women's Hospital staging systems, then we consider further imaging or adjuvant radiation or chemotherapy in select cases. Not consulting me is high risk. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.